The Gist is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet this Mother's Day with a gift from Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate start at $19.99. Visit berries.com, click on the microphone, and use the code GIST. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and the promo code GIST. And by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Squarespace features an easy-to-use interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Right now, go to squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. That's squarespace.com slash GIST. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 29th, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. It is my duty on the gist to check in from time to time on certain topics, just things that, you know, we have staked our claim in coverage, like bestiality. Andrew and I were talking, we tend to cover a lot of libidinous animals, don't we? I often mention Venezuelan excess when the leaders try to screw the people over by putting the uh, shopkeepers in jail, always talking about McDonald's, but maybe there's nothing I talk so much about as Russia, Putin, and the military expansionism. I'm not the only one. I know that a lot of Russian excursions, like shooting down planes in Ukraine or taking over Crimea, are well covered, but there are other things that we give special attention to, like when we talked about RTTV, and remember that story we did about Russian jets buzzing aircraft of neighboring countries? Sometimes the paranoia gets the better of say, the usually stoic Swedes. Here, six months ago, this is a Swedish rear admiral, Anders Grinstad, as interpreted by CNN, talking about what he thought could have been a Russian mystery sub. It could be a submarine or a smaller submarine. It could be a diver using some form of moped-like underwater vehicle. And it could be divers that don't have any business on our territory. That's where I think you have the span of what could be foreign underwater activity. Underhanded and underwater. Well, that was dismissed as a false alarm. But a very similar thing is going on now. No, we weren't finished. In fact, now we're finished. The Finnish military dropped depth charges to warn a suspected submersible that they detected on Monday and Tuesday. I will quote from Commodore Olavi Yantunin. It is a possible underwater object. That is the only thing we could say at the moment. Here is my theory. Either Putin is paying tribute to numerous Bond villains, Blofeld, Drax, Stromberg, they all had submarines, evil submarines, or, or, what the Finns saw was a postal worker in an underwater gyrocopter. Either way, we watch the skies and the water and the press conferences from Nordic states. On the show today, it's a Is That Bullshit with Maria Konnikova, topic stress, and I spiel about the greatest song that nobody can understand, but first the bald truth about running for president in 2015 and 16. In America, they say, the saying goes, that every boy is told he could grow up to be president and now every girl. But you know what they should tell all these boys who are growing up supposedly to be president? Try using the Rogaine, because as you look at the people who are on the stage, they range from the seriously quaffed to the at least somewhat hirsute. 
Even though statistics show that by the age of 40, half of all men exhibit male pattern baldness, we seem not to find this in presidential candidates. There is a deeper question here. Who better to talk with than Mark Leibovich? He is the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. He's a man without hair, but with many hey, opinions. don't out me like that. <laughs> like, this is a non-visual medium. I can, I can you know, uh, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog or no one knows you're bald. In the theater of the mind, paint the picture of what you want the people to think of your hair. Is it a Romney? Is it a Bieber? What's your haircut look like? <laughs> what, who has, like, a bowl haircut? Like, what's the, I mean, Mo or on the Three Stooges or the, <laughs> the epitome of the bowl haircut guy. But, like, we can perhaps take this up in a later episode. But, you know, beyond baldness, I mean, there, there's really not a great bowl haircut in popular culture these days. Has there been? Right. Since Mo? Right. And I think that, yeah, since Mo, people, you know, age out of it at around 12 or if they're still stooges. But it's funny, before I had a car, if you ask me what kind of, you know, when I was 16, what kind of car do you want? I, I said, I'll, I never really thought about kind. I'll take anything. Mm-hmm. I wound up with an Oldsmobile Omega. It's the same thing with the bald guys and the haircut. I'll just take hair. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the real key is, and this actually can go into the deeper political discussion here, is when you're losing it, I mean, the advice I got, and this is probably like maybe 15 years ago, is just to take it down early. Yeah. I mean, you need to gain control. I started shaving it early. Well, that's what I've done. I've uh, I keep it short. But on to the politics at hand. Now, we're not exactly talking about the size spurling slate of candidates. Many of these guys are a little bit balding. Some like Rick Perry seriously aren't. And some like Marco Rubio are said to be balding, but still look pretty uh, hirsute. Do we demand that candidates have better hair than the regular population? I mean, you know, precedent certainly speaks to that. I mean, if you look at the current field, I mean, Scott Walker has a big bald spot, right? However, when asked about it, he he claimed there was some kind of traumatic episode in which he bumped his head doing some kind of housework, and that caused the follicles to stop doing its job. And he, he actually was sort of trying to spin this as some kind of a natural act that you know somehow should not penalize him in the sort of follicle primary, yeah. call it, right? So other bald can. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, I guess, had this famous episode where he was wearing a hairpiece for a while and it blew off right in the middle of like a some kind of public event. Even when he kind of embraced his baldness, which was when he ran for president the last time, I mean, clearly his track record as a presidential candidate in 2008 does not speak well for the fate of, of bald candidates. Nor does Joe Biden, for that matter. I mean, he's, uh, you know, there's a real cover up with Joe Biden, so to speak. Well, this is one of my theories that there are successful people in politics who are bald, but they're often not the elected officials. If you look at campaign managers, I mean, you've got Karl Rove, almost entirely bald. You've got Steve Schmidt, the Republican, who is your hairstyle, which is (laughs) to say none. Will you stop making reference (laughs) to my hairstyle? Really, I'm completely in the closet about that. Okay. The Jacket cover, your book, does not depict you. <laughs> oh, I got him. I'm outed. That's right. I've, James, been, I've been hung by my own self-promotion. But James Carville, uh, Steve Schmidt, Karl Rove, these are, you know, uh, Mike McCurry's deeply mm. receding in a Schumer way. Baldness seems to go with the consultants. I know they'll all make the yeah. jokes about stress and hair loss, but come on, candidates are just distressed. I think there's something there. 
you know, maybe and you think too that I mean, given the money they make, that they should be able to at least pay for some kind of treatment that that might you know either let their hair grow back or cover it up or something. So then you have on the Democratic side Elizabeth Warren, a nice flowing, nice flowing tresses. Martin O'Malley, you know, not the greatest head of hair, but certainly not someone you'd call bald. You have Jim Webb if he runs. Same situation with him. Ah. Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders is a guy like Charles Schumer, is a guy like, you know, Reed and Dick Durbin, guys who are much more balding than the candidates we're talking about. And so it leads me to, I don't know, you know, Bernie Sanders won't win and he might not even run, but it leads me to believe that on a state level, voters are willing to, you know, these are all senators, voters are willing to accept a candidate who has who's bald and maybe therefore has less charisma than a presidential candidate. Do we, are we way more superficial with this presidential candidate? Do Um, these senators, you know, earn themselves a chance to have different ways to earn a voter's trust than the first gut reaction with a presidential candidate? Or is it, and I think this is true, when you elect a president, you know this guy's going to be such a part of your life, you kind of want to cast an agreeable figure, like why people watch Friends on TV. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I was—I've been telling everyone that I was convinced that Bernie Sanders was going to be our next president, but then you just brought up his his hair <laughs> situation, and I think I have to backtrack on that. But the first time I ever saw him in person, I, I literally was on a windswept road, like pedestrian mall in Burlington, and I actually thought he was like a homeless guy. I mean, that's what he looked like. It was the middle of the winter, uh, and of course, I wrote that in my story and. It's the one thing he remembers, which I probably shouldn't have written. But, you know, I'll blame the New York Times editors on that. Did Sanders take umbrage at the homeless comparison? Sanders is all umbrage. (laughs) Hard to distinguish that umbrage from the other Bernie umbrages. Can a candidate be too good looking for voters? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the keys to to politicians, certainly physically, is to look like you're not trying too hard. Mm -hmm. And that's a proxy for just their manner altogether. I mean, it's, it's nonchalance is a very, very valued um, you know, thing in politics if you if you are seen to be attractive but not trying to be attractive or not coming off in a certain way. Well, this thing about trying too hard, you know, this plays into uh, Hillary Clinton, certainly not bald, but let's talk about that for a second. You wrote about her <laughs> you being... You don't know that. Quote, unquote. Wig. That's right. Quote, unquote. Right. Bald Ghazi <laughs> is... Alleged. Bald Ghazi. There you go. <laughs> you wrote about how polarizing she was. Now, part of the polarization, the supposed polarization, the Washington Post had a great headline. She's polarizing insofar as she is a politician running for office. But part of it is this idea that she She's trying too hard. Do you think she actually is trying harder than her Republican or even maybe Democratic rivals, or she just lets it show more? You know, maybe she doesn't. She doesn't sort of carry nonchalance the way others do. But look, I mean, what could be a more calculated species in the world than presidential candidates? I mean, these are people who, in many cases, have been trying to do this for years. You know, every human transaction is is, is sort of viewed through the prism of how can this person or this transaction be useful to me? So. Yeah, I mean, maybe she doesn't pull it off with the kind of seamless ease that a Barack Obama or a Bill Clinton does. But I always thought that that was probably, you know, overstated to a point. Right. Give me like, like no one could really make the case that Ted Cruz isn't trying or Marco Rubio isn't no, trying. I mean, of course not. these they're guys are calcul- trying. I mean, they're politicians. Yeah. Calculated. And part of it maybe is that they're not bald. I don't know. It could be. You know, it is interesting about baldness, though, because, I mean, while this country has shown great intolerance for bald candidates or, or little appetite for bald candidates, you know, the symbol of our national freedom is the bald eagle. So perhaps we look for baldness in greater American symbols that are more transcendent than just an individual. Talking the big talk on the big issues. How's that? It's pretty deep, huh? I like it. It's Mark Leibovich. He is the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. 
He is a third of the podcast for America with Annie Lowry and Alex Wagner, Podcast for America, now part of the Panoply Network. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Anytime. Let's talk about the good things about berries covered in chocolate. Well, you got the fact that they're berries and that they're covered in chocolate. And when we're talking about Sherry's berries, they're guaranteed to be delicious. They're guaranteed to be fresh, giant, freshly dipped strawberries. Also, there's a guarantee that the price is good. It's only $19.99. For my listeners only, we're giving you this 40% savings. Here are the other things about berries and Sherry's berries that you might not even think about. It is really cool to get a box of berries. Sending actual produce through the mail, produce wrapped in chocolate, There is a general rule that almost everything is better wrapped in chocolate, but a giant strawberry wrapped in chocolate through the mail, you open it up, what's this? It's got layers of insulation. It's got an ice pack. The ice pack tells you not to eat it. This seems cool. Every bit of that, the anticipation, then you open it up and you're never let down because you get giant, juicy, delicious strawberries. Again, I'll tell you about my deal. Starting at $19.99, an offer for my listeners only. If you use the code GIST, go to B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the microphone at the top right corner. Type in GIST. Go to berries.com. Click on the microphone and enter my code GIST. Every species has a stress response. Without it, hyenas would never run away from lions, fish would never dart from the sharks, and Featherstone would never pull it together to get the Hastings report in by midnight. So stress saves, stress helps us, but we hate stress. We're told stress kills. No one likes stress. There's deadly stress and toxic stress, and we stress over stress. Luckily, Maria Konnikova is here. She has a PhD in behavioral science. She's a writer for The New Yorker. She's the author of books about Sherlock Holmes and a new one about con men. She comes on the gist to give rulings on issues of bullshit. Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. So when we say stress, is there some real thing that we mean? Is there a real definition? Sure. If you ask a scientist, what is stress? They're going to give you something along the lines of, well, it's physiological arousal. So when your body is subject to certain types of stressors, Mm -hmm. so things in the environment that make you kind of on edge a little bit, your physiology is going to become aroused. What does that mean? You might sweat, your heart rate might go up, um, your pulse obviously would change. So there are things that we can use to measure physiologically what's happening to your body. Your body might start releasing certain types of hormones, and that normally means, like, for instance, cortisol in your saliva, something in the environment is causing you to react in a, an aroused way. So the way you say that, uh, it's a synonym for excitement. I think we think of excitement as good. You mm. go to movies for it, and stress is bad. Yes. We probably shouldn't think mm-hmm. of it that way. Is there good stress and bad stress? Yeah, it's not necessarily good stress versus bad stress, it has more to do with the level of stress. There are good levels of stress and bad levels of stress. And this all goes back to a very famous paper in 1908 by Yerkes and Dodson, which gave rise to something that everyone knows these days called the Yerkes-Dodson Law, or the inverted U formula. And what they did was they looked at mice. And when I first read this paper, I got so excited because it said, we looked at arousal levels in dancing mice. And I was like, oh, my God, dancing mice. This is going to be so cool. We're going to have mice dancing. And then I was so bummed to discover that that's just a strain of mice. There were no no mice actually doing a tango. But wouldn't that have been awesome? 
Yeah, well, in 1908, it probably would have been a minuet, but can probably. you imagine the hip-hop yeah. or lock-and-pop mice of the 1980s? That would be cool. Yeah. So what they did was they put a mouse in a little mouse maze the way that you normally do with mice, and there was a black room and a white room, and the mouse had to learn that it always had to go into the white room, no matter where it started out. It was always to avoid the black. And they, in order to teach the mouse this, they used electric shocks, and they wanted to see you know, if we shock the mouse every time it walks into the black room, is it going to learn better or worse? And what they found was that it depended on the level of the shock. So up to a certain point, the mouse started learning faster because, you know, it it said, oh, this is an electric shock. I should probably avoid it. But then when the shock got too high, the learning just completely deteriorated. The mouse had no idea what it was doing and it would get shocked more and more, Mm -hmm. even though it should have been learning to avoid it. What they realized was, oh, stress actually follows an inverted you. So up to a certain point, it enhances your memory, it enhances your learning, it enhances your performance. And then once you reach that optimal point, it starts, everything starts deteriorating and going downhill. You become so incredibly stressed that you can't deal with it anymore. You can't learn. And so it becomes totally counterproductive. So in the hundred years since they've done that, what advancements have been made? I can think of a couple things that might be wrong with that study. For instance, that that stress was a painful stress. But if stress, as you say, just means excitement, Mm -hmm. they could do it with, say, the promise of food could cause excitement or stress. Maybe that's a different kind of reaction. You know what? It is shocking to me (laughs) get that (laughs) and you're no dancing mouse um it is shocking to me how well their results have held up given how small the study was i mean some of their conditions had two mice yeah which today people would look at that and say this is this is bullshit Mm -hmm. this is not a publishable study but it's been replicated more than almost any other effect in the last hundred years. And it ends up that it's not just electric shocks. um, It's all sorts of stressors. So now, you know, with people, even though there are some people who you'd really want to shock and see what the optimal shock level would be, there are different ways of getting people stressed. You know, there's, you can put them under time pressure. You can tell them that, oh, hey, you're going to have to give a talk later on in front of an audience that you, but you didn't know that was coming. There are lots of things that you could do to make someone feel feel nervous, feel get physiologically aroused. And what we find is that this inverted U holds not just in learning, but in almost every single sort of performance that so you measure. We keep finding that there is a point where challenges getting in the way of our goal go from being helpful or provoking us or prompting us to greatness. They go from that to hurting. Exactly. And is it different for different people? Is it, it is. predictable, though, when when that stress, what would we call it, a break point? Yeah, it is yeah. different for different people. Okay. So there's a lot of variation. So for you, I might be able to push you more than I can push myself. Yes, that's what my drill sergeant always told me before he broke me. Yes. <laughs> and, and it also depends on the activity because the better you are at something, the more stress you can withstand. So someone might have a breaking point that's very different depending on what they're actually doing. So I'm not a runner. My breaking point in running is probably going to be much sooner than my breaking point in something that I actually know how to do. Stress, too much stress, bad stress is really bad for us. Is that bullshit? No, that's not bullshit. But everyone who says it's good to be stressed is not wrong. (laughs) And everyone who says it's bad to be stressed is not wrong. It just depends how much for how long and how, how well you're able to deal with it. There you have it. Maria Konnikova plays the Is That Bullshit game with us. She did so ably today. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now a word from our sponsor. And, you know, I was thinking a website is an 
interesting and dynamic form of media when you think about it. I mean, I, was, I just went to a play the other day. So there are a lot of rules with a play, right? Can't be too long, gotta talk out loud, face the audience. I mean, it's a form of media, I guess, that's really restrictive. So are books, so is television. But a website can be anything. It could be long like a book, it could be purely visual like a painting, it could be musical. It could be anything. And that's the problem. When something could be anything, how do you know what to make it? Where do you start? I have a suggestion. Why not start with Squarespace? Squarespace is simple, powerful, and beautiful. They have 24-7 support via live chat and email. And for eight bucks a month, you get a free domain name if you buy Squarespace for the year. They also offer commerce, which means that every website comes with a free online store. So if your website is just a painting, I don't know, sell those paintings. If it's just music, you know what? Sell a painting. No one sells music anymore. Responsive design is something Squarespace offers. Your website scales to look great on any device. And cover pages, which is a feature that allows you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. Start a trial. No credit card required. You can build it today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That's the offer code GIST. And you're telling them, hey, we also support the GIST. That is helpful to everyone. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now the spiel. Let's give it to him right now. Jack Ely has died. The 71-year-old was the singer of the greatest, most important song in the history of rock music that no one can understand. Louie Louie by the Kingsman. Louie Louie is not so much a song as it is a mania, and everything it touched became a little crazy. It exposed the prejudices, neuroses, and paranoia of anyone who listened or looked at it. And every sentence associated with Jack Ely and his singing of Louie Louie sounds like it's been processed through a sort of Dada Salvador Dali-esque bizarrity machine. Well, first, actually, here was an logical explanation from Jack Ely about why the song sounds like it does. He's on a show called Rock Talk with Alan Handelman, and here he is talking about the circumstances of the recording session of Louie Louie. He had us set up in a circle with me standing in the middle, uh, singing into the mic, and, and it still didn't sound quite right. He had us run through about eight bars or so, and it still didn't sound quite right to him. Mm -hmm. So he had uh, a technician come in and take the mic and put it on a boom and stick it up at at the ceiling. That's about a 15-foot ceiling. So the mic was hanging probably, I don't know, 18 to 24 inches off the ceiling, and I was directly under it, leaning my head back, yelling up (laughs) at this mic. Really? How many feet away were you about? Well, uh, I was approximately 5'10", so the, the mic's up there at 14 feet. Wow. Well, that's amazing. So that's why we didn't know what you were saying. So, Well, it didn't have anything to do really with how far the mic was away from me. What it really had to do with is how words get enunciated when your head's tipped all the way back and you're yelling up. All right, try that. Try doing what he said. 
sing Louie Louie, Louie Louie, straight ahead, and now tilt your head back at a, you know, more than 45 degree angle, expose your larynx like you're a turkey just drinking water in the rain, and try to say Louie Louie. I'll do it for you. Louie Louie. It's hard. You don't sound like a human. And because of that, America went nuts. First of all, I'll tell you some other bizarre things about Jackie Lee. Here, this is from his Wikipedia page. Ely played guitar and sang for the Young Oregonians, a traveling vaudeville show for entertainers under the age of 18. We didn't get paid in money. We got paid in experience, Ely said. I like that. In 1962, while playing a gig at the Pippo Club in Seaside, Oregon, the band noticed Rockin' Robin Roberts' version of Louie Louie being played on the jukebox for hours on end. The entire club would get up and dance. Why wouldn't they? Here is that version, Rockin' Robin Roberts. But when the Kingsmen did their version of the world went frickin' nuts. Rumors abounded that the lyrics were dirty. The state of Indiana banned airplay of the song because of these dirty lyrics. The FBI was called in to investigate dirty lyrics. People sent them copies of Louie Louie in the mail claiming that if you play the song, this 45 single on 33, the clearly disgusting lyrics became discernible. And in the FBI report, I have this FBI report in front of me. It's unbelievable. They quote angry people writing to Robert Kennedy, director of the FBI, how dare you let our children be exposed to this? And they write down what they think the lyrics are. Here are some choice, heard, misheard versions of Louie Louie. Oh, Louie Louie, oh no, get her way down low. Oh, Louie Louie, oh baby, get her way down low. A fine little girl awaiting for me. She's just a girl across the way. We'll take her and park all alone. She's never a girl. I lay at home. At night, at 10, I lay her again. Fuck you, girl. Oh, all the way. Oh, my bed. I lay her there. I meet a rose in her hair. That kind of ended nice. She's got a rag and I'll move above. It won't be long. She'll slip it off. I'll take her in my arms again. I'll tell her I'll never leave again. Get that broad out of here. Yeah, the the, the famous get that broad out of here part. Here's another one. (laughs) The FBI had to sift through this. Here's another one. Every night and day, I play with my thing. I fuck your girl all kinds of ways. In all night now, meet me there. I feel her low. I give her hell. Hey, youth bitch. Hey, love maker. Now hold my bone. I'm going to stop now. Just saying the FBI had to read through these purported lyrics. So what they did, they called the original guy who wrote the song. This guy died in 1994, made a little bit of money off of it. And he said, no, here are the lyrics about sailing on a Jamaican ship. They matched it to the song. They're like, yeah, they sound exactly like the lyrics. It was on the one hand, the case of FBI insanity, just even looking into it. On the other hand, they did dispose of it pretty quickly. There ceased to be a witch hunt, except there didn't cease to be a witch hunt because all the way up until 2005, McCord Middle School of Benton Harbor, Michigan is banned from playing the song at halftime because supposedly the lyrics are dirty. I will now read to you the actual lyrics of Louie Louie. A fine little girl, she waits for me. Me catch the ship across the sea. I sailed the ship all alone. I never think I'll make it home. Three nights and days we sailed the sea. Me think of girl constantly. On the ship, I dream she there. I smell the rose in her hair. Me see Jamaican moon above. It won't be long. Me see my love. Me take her in my arms and then I tell her I never leave again.
And today, after 71 years, the singer sailed off to that Delta party in the great beyond. Jack Ely, without whom, without his version, without his garbled lyrics, I submit we might not ever even know this song. I mean, a couple versions went pretty much nowhere, but we just love Louie Louie and what it represented and what it might mean. And the last weird thing about Jack Ely, the cause of death, his son, Sean, said, because of his religious beliefs, we're not even sure what the illness was. Of course not makes sense in sort of a Louie Louie kind of way. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi blames Russian submersibles for the Dallas Mavericks' poor showing in the NBA postseason. Joel Meyer, the just managing producer, has hair to spare. Andy Bowers, executive producer, might also, we'll never know, because he insists on shaving it off. Facebook.com slash Slate Gist is a really good Facebook page. It's about us, Slate's Gist. And that is the gist. We got to go now. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm David Wallace-Wells, the host of Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm here with Maureen O'Connor. This week we're going to be talking about... Loud sex, sex dolls, and the sexiness of our avatars on My Idol. You can subscribe to Sex Lives at itunes.com slash panoply or panoply.fm. 